Hello, and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today I have quite the amazing episode in store for all of you lovely people out there. Today I'm talking about a English safe cracker, criminal, spy, pacifist, boxer, womanizer, you name it, he was doing it. But first, as this is the wrap-up episode of the opening salvo of High Tea Obsessed Season 3, I wanted to give you a few reminders and updates before we got started officially. Like I said, and like you probably know, this is part 5 of the 5 part opening week of this season. We covered some movies and some really cool topics up until now, but beginning next week, episodes will be released every Tuesday as they have been. As I have things planned right now, this should take us through February 8th, give or take a week or two. If I need to combine some episodes because the topics aren't long enough to get us to that like half hour-ish range I like to be in at minimum. Or if I need to like take a week off or something or like something pops up, technical difficulties, whatever. So right now, plan on all new episodes featuring heist or heist adjacent topics until February 8th. Now today's topic is especially close to my heart as I covered its subject not only in an essay in high school, but it was also the first big history paper I ever wrote in college. Of course, at the time I was technically a high school senior, and I did misunderstand the professor when he said not to mess with the spacing or the fonts or anything like that, and I was too scared to ask him to clarify, so I did wind up writing 20-page paper when it would have been 10, so it was 10 pages single-spaced as opposed to 10 pages double spaced, so probably closer to like 18, 19 pages, but still, uh, it was a lot for 17 year old Thomas to do. And so, my topic of the essay expanded beyond today's focus and into some other subjects. Anyway, with that little rant out of the way, let's get into today's topic, which has a little bit for everyone, you know? If you like romance, it kind of has that if you squint. If you like action and adventure, it definitely has that. If you like crime thrillers, it has that. And if you like charming spies, rest assured, it definitely has that. So, without any more ado, and no more gilding of the lily, today we're talking about Edward Eddie Chapman, a.k.a. Agent Zigzag. Eddie Chapman was born on November 16, 1984, in a small village in Durham County, England. Now, apparently his family had a reputation for being unruly, even troublemakers, and Eddie grew up with little in the way of supervision. Despite this, his intelligence made itself known fairly early, and although everyone saw that he had potential, young Eddie was more likely to be found playing hooky on the beach or even in the movie theater than he was to be found in school. Between his youth and turning 17, Eddie worked some odd jobs, but nothing really stuck, and at the age of 17, he would find himself in London, ultimately joining the Told Stream Guards which is the oldest continuously serving regiment in the British Army, and it has the duty of protecting the monarchy. So, in all the movies and stuff that we've seen, they're the people with the fancy red outfits and tall hats, you know, like the Buckingham Palace guards with the red suits, the bear, beer skin, beer, bearskin caps, 
that can't react when people do stuff to him, basically. He was one of those. I don't know if maybe because he wasn't at Buckingham Palace, he didn't have to not react, but this is um, a fairly prestigious unit today from what I could find on Google. It seems, based on Googling, that this is a fairly prestigious unit today. Um, if anyone is from England and wants to get at me, let me know. Please do. But I think it probably was then as well, if it is considered prestigious today, because it is the oldest continuously serving unit after all, and they are in charge of guarding the monarchs and all that good stuff. And it makes sense that Chapman would have been assigned there. He was, like we've said, a bright young lad. And one of his duties during his time as a member of this regiment was defending the Tower of London. Chapman was said to have been fond of the uniform he wore as part of his posting, thinking it made him look rather dashing and he was particularly keen on the big bearskin hat. However, this position proved to be way less thrilling than he anticipated. And so after serving only nine months, he was granted six days leave, which is, you know, he's like, oh, got almost a whole week off. Not bad, not bad. Except our boy Eddie Chapman abandoned his post. He decided to go AWOL, and he ran away with a girl he met in Soho. Chapman was able to enjoy his time in Soho, and he lived lavishly there, you know, he was chilling, he was partying, and he grew quite smitten with the weird mixing of the seedy underbelly of London with the elite, wealthy, and artistic aspects of the city as well, and it all sort of mingled in Soho. And it took two months for the army to finally catch up with him. And once they did, he was caught, he was court-martialed, he was sentenced to three months in a military prison, and dishonorably discharged from the army. Upon his release, Chapman made a beeline straight back to Soho, and he was working odd jobs to make ends meet again. During this time, his jobs ranged from like a film extra to bartender to professional boxer, almost anything he could do to make money. But his taste for the finer things, you know, expensive restaurants, parties with uh, fancy alcohol, expensive alcohol, along with a gambling habit left him with substantial debts, and so, seemingly out of options, Chapman turned to a life of crime. He started slowly, you know, the odd forgery, the odd con job, a little bit of light burglary, and robbery, blackmail, you get the idea. It started slowly snowballing. One of his schemes that he repeated fairly often was he would seduce a woman and then have an associate take photos of their sexual tryst and then threatened to blackmail her by showing the photos to her parents, her husband, whatever. And one of the, and you know, that's bad. But one of the worst examples of this is when he had sex with a young woman, like 17 or 18, passed along VD to her, gave her VD, and then he blackmailed her by threatening to tell her parents that she had given it to him if she didn't pay up. Which was just, you know, horrible, horrible, horrible look for our guy. Allegedly, he might have also served as a prostitute for both sexes. It's unclear. Anyway, after eventually serving a few jail stints for his, his various offenses in this time, he made a connection with another criminal who taught him how to save crack. And at this point, Chapman made a transition from petty uh, lower-class criminal to a prince of the criminal underworld. He became a member... Uh, one of the leading members of an elite, highly wanted crew of criminal bank robbers and safe crackers known as the Jelly Gang. According to MI5's website, 
Chapman's skill and success as a robber allowed him to live as a playboy in Soho, brushing elbows with the weirdly mingled elite of London and London's underground, as I've said before. Uh, One particular example of this, and this is someone we all know, I think, and this person would become a good friend of Chapman's, and that is Ian Fleming, the future author of James Bond, who would also go on to prove an essential piece of the Allied war efforts against the Axis powers. Perhaps we'll get into more on this later. Uh, You know, like a later episode. But, you know, we got this charming con man type guy, this charming guy who is seemingly good at everything, life of the party, everyone likes him, great with women, becomes a spy. There's been some indication that maybe Chapman was one of the inspirations for James Bond. Now Fleming, for his part, has said that Bond was an... um, collection of the spies that he worked with during his time at MI5 or MI6 during the war. So, and I I think there have been other instances where he has named a specific person, allegedly. And sometimes people try to pick, like, Christopher Lee as the exact um, inspiration for James Bond. But I think he really is an amalgamation of everybody. But I think definitely there are some notes of Chapman in James Bond, certainly. Anyway, according to the Times Online, Chapman wrote years later, so this is years after he's been living this life, I met with all types of tricky people, racehorse crooks, thieves, prostitutes, and the flotsam of the night. Life of a great city. Uh, anyway, after he started rich as a safe tractor, he drove a Bentley and wore Savile Row suits, so fancy suits I'm imagining, based on the context, and... Ben McIntyre wrote in Agent Zigzag, for Chapman, breaking the law was a vocation. So this was, you know, this is how he made a lifestyle. He saw it as, like, pretty legitimate, and he had work to do. And this work allowed him to be rich and mingle with the people he wanted to hang out with. Back to Chapman. As a member of the Jelly Gang, as his band of safe tractors came to be known, Chapman used Gelignite, also called Explosive Gelatin, or obviously just Jelly, hence their name. And they used it to blow open safes and steal whatever was inside. That's where the heist aspect and my excuse for talking about Edward Chapman comes in. Now, as far as safe tracking techniques, I wouldn't say blowing it up with dying, with like anything is especially sophisticated or especially impressive. But it allowed them to be quite the prolific thieves. And they eventually spawned manhunts and became among the most wanted men in all of England. And all of Great Britain, I guess we would say. This this thievery eventually caught up to him and the gang, and Chapman was arrested in Scotland before being let out on bail, which makes no sense because he's very obviously a flight risk. And he pulled another job so that he was able to get the money to bail the rest of his crew out of jail, and they fled to the island of Jersey to lie low for a while. Now, this plot was not ultimately successful, and I believe all of them, but certainly Chapman, would end up arrested. But before that... Chapman would meet a lovely young lady named Betty Farmer, whom he would eventually end up marrying, but that's a spoiler alert for later. Anyway, Chapman and Farmer were out on a date in a very fancy hotel in Jersey called the Hotel de la Plage, when Chapman noticed several plainclothes officers approaching them, and naturally he did what anyone would do in this situation. He stood up, jumped through a closed dining room window, running, taking off down the beach with the police hot in pursuit behind him. 
Although he initially eluded capture, he was able to escape them, and he's prowling around the town looking for a way out. Eventually, he decides he needs to get some money so he can get off this island, and he decided to grab a rob a nightclub. Not one of his best efforts, and he's caught for this. And while on the surface, we're like, uh-oh, guy's in prison, not great. It would actually turn out to be huge because he had broken the law in Jersey, which meant he had to serve a two-year stint in prison there before they could transfer him to mainland England to stand trial and serve up to like 28 years in prison, over 20 years for sure, in prison for his various safe cracking and other nonsense he had gotten up to there. And believe it or not, this is where things start to get interesting. Because that's right, this whole story, this whole time, about a dashing rogue who absconds from the army, becomes a prince, becomes a crown prince of London's underground, becoming beloved by all manners of high society, a criminal and legitimate alike, becoming a professional becoming a professional fighter and a member of one of the most wanted crews of criminals in all of London and all of England, all while being a pacifist. All that, just an appetizer, because the rest of the story is the interesting part. So Chapman is arrested, right? And he begins serving a two-year prison stint in Jersey in 1939. And the prison stint itself is pretty eventful, right? We have uh, some solitary confinement mixed in and almost like right on the one yard line fumbled it's almost successful breakout attempt a hunter strike all that stuff we're gonna skip it because in 1940 jersey would find itself occupied by the nazis now for a time you know chapman's in prison his life doesn't change too much and i think Basically, just the jailers changed. There might have been some times when his rations were cut a little bit. And I'm not saying the Jerseyans, Jerseyans, people of Jersey didn't really collaborate with the Nazis, right? Just that, for a time, things for Chapman remained largely static. Upon his release, though, things got a little bit dicey for our guy. So, he's working as a hairdresser with Anthony Faramoose, whom he had met in prison, and Faramus was not a very successful criminal. He had gotten caught with some petty crime. Chapman described him as a hopeless criminal. Uh, but they struck up a fast friendship in prison, and the two are out. They're trying to make things, like, they're trying to go straight. They're trying to make the best of a bad situation. Set up a barber shop, cutting the Nazis' hair, cutting the English people's hair, just doing their thing. However, the pair were fingers under undesirables by someone and implicated in some acts of resistance that were being carried out on Jersey. And so both the local population and the Nazis didn't really like the pair. And Chapman was like, all right, you know, probably time for me and us to get up on out of here while the getting is good. So according to MI5, they say that Chapman was desperate to return to England. But I think he was probably just desperate to get off of this island in particular if by any means possible so chapman and faramus volunteered to join the nazis abwehr a military intelligence service abwehr i'm i'm gonna suck to pronounce it i have to say it like 20 times i am sorry chapman made the ideal candidate for a spy what with his criminal and military background and whatnot but faramus did not he was not a good candidate for spying at all so Faramus and Chapman were eventually arrested by the Nazis and transferred to Fort de Romainville in prison. Fort de Romainville 
was a transfer station for dissidents and others where they would be held before being transferred to various concentration camps. And the place itself was horrible. They had a lot of executions, beatings, deaths. Uh, the conditions were obviously very bad with poor rations, beatings, and executions carried out frequently laid down a whim by the guards. Despite this, Faramus and Chapman were able to make the best of a horrible situation, allegedly stealing or perhaps making a key to the women's part of the prison, as well as stealing additional rations and supplies to augment their meter diet. Eventually, Chapman was summoned from the prison and underwent a number of interrogations where he confirmed his intent to become a spy for the Nazis against his homeland. Chapman used his criminal past and pending prison sentence as his supposed motivation. No love for England, no love for his homeland. Like The only thing he had waiting back for him there was a jail time. So it worked. And now for their part, the Abwehr were in a bind because they were way behind. So they were willing to make the deal. They were getting their asses absolutely handed to them by the Allied and specifically English intelligence. And they were getting crappy intelligence from their assets in England. Now, of course, they didn't know this. But that was because every German asset in England, every single one of them, and this is true throughout the war, had been captured and then turned into a double agent or executed. So very rough for those dirtbag Nazis. Between that and the Enigma Code being cracked, which, of course, the Nazis had no idea. They thought it was uncrackable. Uh, they got absolutely wrecked by MI5 and Allied intelligence, and they were very cocky and just did a very bad job in general. Because of the low level of intelligence they were receiving from their assets, and because of his tantalizing appeal as a potential spy, Chapman was accepted with open arms. However, Faramus was not, and he was eventually transferred to a concentration camp where he would remain for the rest of the war, though he would survive and go on to become an actor. The implication in Faramus being held while Chapman was freed is that he was sort of being held as a hostage to ensure Chapman's good behavior and that sort of thing. Because, you know, the idea would be that with his friend held, Chapman wouldn't want to abscond or turn against the Nazis and work for the British. However, that didn't really work out for the Nazis. So Chapman was trained in espionage by a man he knew as Dr. Grauman, but was revealed to be Stephen Goring, who was responsible for training Abwehr agents and overseeing their missions in southern France. So like the Abwehr station in southern France, Doc, uh, Stephen Goring was responsible for that. And I think at this point it's a good time to look into this, maybe we call it a subplot, but a lot, allegedly, a lot of the leadership of the Abwehr, Abwehr, <clears throat> allegedly a lot of the leadership, at least, of the Abwehr, were not particularly fond of the Nazis, right? There were like a lot of intellectuals among them, not bait on the Nazis, these guys. Some of them were even like big-time anti-Nazi people. And I don't know that we can qualify a lot of this as active resistance for the overwhelmingly large part. It has been put forth, this anti-Nazi sentiment in, their, in the Nazi intelligence service, has been put forth as an explanation as to why they were so badly mismatched against their allied counterparts. And Doreen was almost certainly amongst those who actively disdained the Nazi regime. And he even allowed unflattering portraits of Hitler to be drawn, like Hitler as a carrot, 
to be drawn on the walls of the training facility Chapman worked at. And this has led some to speculate that maybe Doreen might have been aware of Chapman being a double agent and that he might have even like initiated the idea and been in on the steam. I do think it's also important to note when we delve into Nazi and like World War II history, a great deal of revisionist history goes on with who were fervent Nazis and who were like didn't want to be Nazis but were forced into out of a sense of like patriotic duty they wanted to serve Germany or like just getting along to go along type of things so they would survive and not be sent to concentration camps themselves or like executed or whatever so it's like I don't know a lot of this stuff had like turned out that they were anti-Nazi we find out after the war or it was sort of contacted by the allied allied forces when they needed to have a reason to cooperate with these officials like we see with Warner Von Braun and the rockets and all that guy was up to some disgusting stuff when he was working with the Nazis. But all that being said, I think it is entirely possible that the Avvair were both not very excited about their job and also very bad at it. So negligent and also just genuinely not good at spying because they had some pretty big fuck ups that we'll get to uh, pretty momentarily. Back to Chapman, he was enjoying his time in occupied Paris. He was given an allowance to spend on entertainment, food, alcohol, and the ladies. And he drew very close with Ronin. Uh, they would become friends, mentor, mentee, like just a good relationship all around. When Chapman was properly trained up in like honing his criminal skills, how to use them for espionage, so, you know, he's got some code training, he has to figure out, he has to be trained in how to resist interrogation, skydiving, uh, a little bit more training with explosives, that sort of thing. After a year of this training, Chapman was given his mission. He was to be sent back to England, where it was hoped he would be able to recruit amongst the criminal underworld to damage the English war effort. Specifically, his main mission was blowing up the de Havilland factory, which was being used to make these wooden bombers nicknamed Mosquito Bombers, which were really just making life difficult on the Nazis. Chapman agreed to do so, but first he <laughs> negotiated the low, low price of £15,000 upon his return. Now, for those of you at home keeping store, £15,000 in 1942 shakes out to around $900,000 today, a little bit over it. So, a nice bit of dough for our spy-criminal friend. So, on December 16th, 1942, Chapman is finally dispatched to England. He's flown in. During the flight, he suffers a nosebleed because he didn't put his mask on properly. And then, he gets stuck in the tube when he's trying to jump out of the plane because it was converted from a bombing, like a bomber, to a skydiving vessel. Gets stuck in the tube. Eventually, he's dislodged and lands about 20 miles away from his intended pocket. So Chapman has his boots on the ground. He's in England. He's in his homeland. And he has a pistol, a cyanide pill in his boot, 1,000 pounds, and he's primed to wreak all sorts of havoc. Only one small problem. They already knew he was coming. You see, like I said, they cracked the Enigma code and they basically knew everything the Abwehr were up to. 
And sure, they had to be careful, you know, MI5 had to be careful not to be too overt in responding to threats because they didn't want the Nazis to know that the untractable Enigma Toad had been tracked. But they were pretty confident that they'd have Fritchen as... It's probably said with some sort of German accent, but Fritzen? Fritz, we'll talk. Uh, which was the Nazis' toad name for Chapman. They're pretty sure they'd have Fritz tied up pretty soon. So, luckily for Chapman, he messed up his landing, so the planned search efforts for him weren't there. And he was able to turn himself in. Another issue that would come up uh, after he turned himself in that would have probably done him taught was that the idiot Nazis gave him a thousand pounds, right? And they were very careful. They're like, we had to make sure these are real British pounds that they looked used. They don't look like they were just printed. They don't look like brand new money. But they wrapped them in rubber bands from the Reichs Bank. So they like clearly marking him as a Nazi spy. Anyway, Chapman stumbled to the nearest farmhouse and asked them to phone the police where he turned himself in and upon interrogation offered himself to become a double agent for England. Chapman was taken to a secret MI5 detention center in West London known as Camp 20. There he was interrogated by Lieutenant Colonel Robin Stevens, also known as Tinai because he was always wearing a monocle. Apparently, he even wore a monocle when he went to bed, which is either cool or stupid. Now, because the British knew so much of what was going on and they were able to verify the info that he was giving them, they were willing to accept Chapman as a double agent if they hadn't been able to verify all this stuff. You know, all they would have to go on is his background as a criminal. Probably wouldn't be hearing about a story. Probably would have been executed. But because they were able to verify this, they were satisfied with the information he provided and his genuine willingness to serve England. Old Tenai concluded, In our opinion, Chapman should be used to the fullest extent. He genuinely means to work for the British against the Germans. By his courage and resourcefulness, he is ideally fitted to be an agent. So, a lot of the same qualities that made him an ideal fit for the Abwehr also would serve to make him a valuable tool for MI5 as well. Eddie Chapman thus became Agent Zaidzide, one of the most important British double agents of the Second World War. His codename is obviously very fitting, and according to Ben McIntyre again, Winston Churchill ordered that all operations involving double agents and uh, like deception sort of stuff were to be named with no indication of what they really pertain to or like who they really were. Now, apparently, everyone absolutely delighted in violating this order, and so Zigzag, which very obviously points to a double agent, or someone, like, <laughs> this is just one example of an on-the-nose naming of a covert operation. So, MI5 decided that they would re-infiltrate Chapman into Germany and obtain more information about the Abwehr. So in order to do this, he'd have to successfully carry out his mission, right? Under the supervision of an MI5 officer, Chapman made radio contact with the Germans and informed them that he was preparing to carry out his sabotage mission at the de Havilland factory. Chapman was sent to the factory at Hatfield, along with an MI5 minder, to work out a plan of attack so that he could tell the German collaborators, or so he could tell his German controllers what he had done. They couldn't just fake the factory, like, 
attack because they had to have a realistic plan that would explain how Chapman was able to carry out this attack so that when he returned to Germany, he would be interrogated and pass the interrogations and be trusted and not executed so that the Germans would keep using him and thus the English could keep using him. So Chapman surveyed the site of the factory and supposedly carried out the sabotage like this. He claimed to have climbed a small barbed wire fence, placed a suitcase containing 30 pounds of explosives near a part of the factory where there were four trans transformers within a walled-off yard. Then another suitcase with the same level of ordinance would be placed in a facility which the Nazis thought was a backup powerhouse, but in reality was just an abandoned swimming pool. Which isn't really, like, that abandoned, that fact that it was an abandoned swimming pool has nothing to do with anything, but just shows, like, the Nazis really weren't good at this spying thing. Anyway, Chapman would set the devices to blow with an hour delay, so he could escape and get far enough away that he wasn't in the area to be named as a suspect, and Britain's war efforts would be greatly hampered. Now, Chapman and his handler realized that it would be nearly impossible for one man to carry 60 pounds of explosives in two separate suitcases over a fence. So they determined he would need an accomplice. Now, fortunately, like I mentioned, before he left for Britain, the Abwehr officials had given Chapman permission to recruit members of the Jelly Jane as accomplices if needed. Therefore, Chapman would supposedly seek the help of Jimmer, uh, Jimmy Hunt, one of his former associates, who was actually still in prison. In order to convince the Germans he was able to create the bombs, Chapman also went around to various stores to make sure that he was able to obtain all the ingredients necessary. And he found that even with wartime rationing, it was surprisingly easy to do this. Now, in order to fake the sabotage and make it look like this building had been blown up, MI5 hired a magician, a professional magician, and a team of camouflage experts who created paper mache models of various parts of the factory. So some of the transformers that they would display as being knocked over, they made like the beautiful weird tarps that from the sky looked like parts of an exploded building, and they made like paper mache uh, rubble and like pieces of factory and stuff like that. And they even went so far as to accurately like they were so thorough that they determined the proper weather conditions to stage the camouflage because they had to make sure that it was seen but they also had to make sure that they had enough darkness to stage it further it was determined that the press had to be involved because sabotage so severe you know like a huge factory getting blown up would surely be noted by the papers also groaning and other members of the abwehr followed the papers closely uh, especially groaning because he was looking for the times he was looking for messages from Chapman and because he was reading the times they decided that planting a false story in it would be the most effective however the editor of the times Robert Barrington Ward refused to publish the story he said that placing a story in the paper that he knew not to be true would violate his entire policy as a journalist and also the papers like ethical policies they then approached the Daily Express, who agreed to do it, but again, the editor was very hesitant and had to be convinced. And so they decided that the compromise would be it would only appear in the first edition of the paper that was going to Lisbon, Portugal, and from there it would be distributed to the Nazis, uh, just naturally. And then future editions 
wouldn't have this story in it. Uh, this plan would work because even if the Nazis realized the story was only in the first edition, they would think that it was removed from later editions because of censorship laws put in place get that like prohibited impeding the war effort type of thing, damaging morale, that sort of thing. On the night of January 29th through the morning of the 30th, the camouflage experts moved to the de Havilland factory and set up their ruse. Looking at the scene, MI5 officials eventually were convinced that their plot would fool the Germans, despite the fact that the, there was thicker cloud cover than expected. Ronnie Reed, an MI5 officer responsible for supervising Chapman, commented that the whole picture was very convincing and that aerial photography from any height above 2,000 feet would show considerable devastation without creating any suspicion. And it absolutely did the trick. The Germans were fooled, and they were very, very pleased with Chapman. Having satisfied his German handlers, Chapman made contact and requested pickup via boat or U-boat. And this was denied, and he was ordered to return via the neutral port in Lisbon, Portugal. Now, this posed another problem, and the British surmised that this was because the Nazis didn't want to pay him the money they owed him, because returning via Portugal would be very difficult, as he had no reason to leave England for the neutral port, and it was very possible he'd be captured, and given his record, thrown in prison. So during this time, they were working out how to return him to Portugal and ultimately Nazi-occupied France and continental Europe, they prepared Chapman for cross-interrogations on his return, ensuring that his cover story would hold up. Eventually, it was decided that he would make his way to Portugal by joining a merchant marine crew and jumping ship at a port. There he made So in Lisbon, he made contact with the Germans and requested explosives in order to send them back to the English who wanted a look at German ordinances. And instead of sabotaging the ship as he was ordered to, he turned the explosives over to the captain, who in turn turned them into the authorities. Although the Nazis didn't even notice that the ship hadn't blown up, because again, they sucked at spycraft, MI5 was careful to have it inspected so as to assure the Nazis Chapman had attempted to carry out his assignment. So I guess this whole, the Abwehr sucking at spycraft raises the question of whether they actually didn't want Chapman to return because of the money, or if they just like, didn't realize it would be difficult to return because they sucked at their job. Anyway, with Chapman returned to Doring and the Avvair, he was interrogated, but his story held up, and they didn't reward him with £15,000, but they did reward him with 100,000 Reichsmarks, a yacht, and a very cushy assignment training other agents in Norway. And he was also rewarded an Iron Cross the highest military honor for bravery in the German army, and he was inducted into the German army as a first lieutenant. Now, at this point, I should get into something that I've neglected to mention in great detail, but I have mentioned it a little bit. Chapman was a consummate womanizer. I mentioned his whole plot of seducing the black women, blackmailing women for money, and that he had that steamy romance and engagement to Betty Farmer, but during this whole time, he was also at least engaged, possibly married to another woman with whom he had a daughter. During his time in Norway, Chapman would acquire yet another lady love, this time the lovely Dagmar Lalum, 
who unbeknownst to him at the time was also a member of the Norwegian resistance. Now, she hoped to use Chapman for information. However, the two wound up working together as Chapman confessed his identity to her, and she in turn confessed her identity to him. And, you know, they had a nice love affair. He promised he would return to marry her. However, poor Dadmar, or, you know, maybe strong, stoic Dadmar, she struggled mightily for this decision because she never broke her promise to Chapman and uh, she never broke her promise to Chapman not to reveal his identity. And so it was thought that she was a collaborator who had betrayed the resistance and fallen for a suave Nazi agent because they thought he was just a German with a weird accent, not an Englishman. And she never revealed his identity. So, spoiler alert, Chapman never returned for Dagmar after he left Norway, and she wound up serving six months in jail as a collaborator, and I believe she never married, and her contributions to the war effort weren't revealed until her, until her death in 1999, at which point she passed away suffering from both Parkinson's and alcoholism. She did briefly get to meet up with Chapman again in 1994, but at this time he was already married and had a kid and stuff, and also they were both super old. Anyway, Chapman's time in Norway was relatively chill. He did a little bit of spying, you know, he photographed some Nazis who visited his home and stuff like that. And he also photographed the home of Vidkund Quisling, an actual Nazi collaborator who attempted to rule Norway on their behalf. Chapman was eventually sent back to England, this time to help with the accuracy of the V-1 bombs which had been hitting England. So the Nazis were sending their V-1 rockets over they're not super accurate, so they want some agents to help report on them, right? Makes sense. Uh, Chapman, before he left, arranged for the Nazi government to pay for helping to take care of Dagmar in his absence. And he had also had a deal with the English before he left to help take care of his fiancée, Frida Stevenson, and his daughter. So, you know, he had each of them paying a little money for his ladies. Not a bad not, you know, very charming, very schmoozy this guy. Anyway, the V-1 had an issue where they were going short of their targets, and Chapman's primary responsibility in his second stint of England, though he did have some other missions, was to report on the effectiveness of these bombers. Upon his return, he was interrogated, but this time the English were much more gentle in how they handled him. They almost handled him with kid gloves, and it seemed to be partly because they were concerned over how to keep his loyalty. So Chapman had been treated like a prince by the Germans upon his return. He was given a yacht, all that money, like I said, a house. And this was a man living as a self-described prince of the underworld prior to his arrest in Jersey. So you have to think he liked that treatment. So there's this like weird dynamic where his enemies flattered him and treated him super great, so treated him like a prized asset. And while he was more prized to the English, they were a little bit wary of him and weren't sure how to handle him, and he was still technically a wanted criminal at this point. So because of this, MI5 did make preparations to pamper him, though they didn't go so far as to match the Germans with, like, champagne every night and all that stuff. There wasn't a specific daring mission for Chapman and MI5 to pull off this time. They merely had to figure out a way for Chapman's reporting of the V-1 bombing's accuracy not to blow his cover, but also not help the Germans bomb England. Soon a plan was worked out that because the bombs were falling short of their targets, they would have him and their other agents report that the bombs were overshooting their targets with the hope that 
the Nazis would lower the aim even further and that they would land in the countryside instead of England, or instead of London. And this would lead to less damage and loss of life. However, after D-Day and the Allied advance through France, this pretty much stopped being a worry altogether because the missile bases that were able to launch V-1s weren't in range of England anymore. So MI5 and MI6 had elements keen to continue using Eddie, and the Avair certainly seemed to want him to return to the continent, despite the fact that the war effort was doing very badly for them at this point. Chapman's restlessness conspired against him. He was addicted to adventure, and with little being offered at this point, he became listless, bored, he was in a foul mood very often, and he began to revert to his criminal ways. In addition to this, he wasn't particularly good at keeping his position with MI5 a secret. And it seems like Chapman was pretty much in a funk during his return from London. He had bad pain, he wanted to see his fiance and fiance and daughter, and his handlers just described him as moodly, moodly, moody, irritable, bored, insulting. He did carry out a few other missions, notably he deceived the Germans into thinking that a planned like U-boat sea invasion would have been a suicide mission because of how accurate like they didn't want to reveal the radar that the British have, but they he basically concocted some weird super weapon and the Germans became convinced that the U-boats would have been pointless. But his boredom just really seemed to circumvent his uselessness, uh, his usefulness in the eyes of the British. He asked MI5 to release him from being an agent so that he could make contact with the Americans or French and become an agent for them and more in mainland Europe. However, after an incident involving Fitzing Greyhound races via doping, which Chapman wasn't directly involved in, but he definitely profited from, Chapman was finally cut loose. He was given £6,000 and an additional £1,000 of the money the Nazis had paid him as well as a pardon for his past crimes, and sent along his way. Some feared that he would revert to his criminal ways, which would look very bad for them, and they were worried he'd be like, hey, I was a spy, let me out of here. And to an extent, he did, he did, you know, revert back to his criminal ways, and over the years, he was released a few times after he, it was assured by his former colleagues that they were like, hey, judge, this guy was absolutely essential to the war effort. Uh, turn, turn him a break. Turn him a little bit of some slack here. Now, Chapman ultimately wound up abandoning both of his other fiancés and wound up with Betty Farmer, who became Betty Chapman, and eventually the two would have a daughter and settle down in an, English, in an Irish castle. After the war, Chapman would come to learn Gronin's real name, he had known him as Dr. Grauman, if you recall, and the two would rekindle their friendship with, with Doreen becoming a guest at Chapman's daughter's wedding. Chapman would also make multiple attempts to earn a relatively honest living by selling his life story, you know, writing about his exploits, all that good stuff, but he was foiled almost every time by the wartime secrecy ads. He was eventually able to publish a memoir which was heavily redacted and mostly made up, which in turn was adapted into a movie starring Christopher Plummer, friend of the show, called Triple Cross. And this movie received poor to mixed reviews, including by Chapman, who was disappointed by it. According to Christopher Plummer, who wrote this in his autobiography, Chapman was to serve as a consultant on the film, 
which was being shot in France, but he was unable to enter the country because he was still wanted in connection with a plot to kidnap the Sultan of Morocco. So yeah, our guy Eddie was L-I-V-I-N. Dude was just living. He made some mistakes along the way for sure, but he was a super interesting character, addicted to adventure, addicted to love it seems like. His story is so strange, it would I feel like if you try to turn it into a publisher, it would be dismissed as too outlandish for fiction. But it all really happened. It's all right there in MI5's documents or in Ben McIntyre's book. Chapman ultimately passed away after a life of adventure in 1997 of heart failure. And we could definitely get more in depth into and we could definitely get into more of what he was up to after the war. We could get into a little bit more details of what was going on during the war, before the war. But this has already been a pretty long episode, and yeah, I think we all got things to do, right, people? I got things to do. Now, with the facts out of the way, there is one more thing to consider. Allegedly, Eddie Chapman really, 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 he just absolutely wanted to assassinate Adolf Hitler. So during the promise that he would meet Hitler, and given Chapman's charm, it isn't inconceivable to imagine him charming the pants off of Hitler, getting them all excited, sitting down to dinner or like during a speech being seated front row and just taking the shot. And the plan was apparently taken seriously by MI5, MI6, and it was considered, they talked about it, they had meetings about it, but it was ultimately scrapped. Perhaps it was scrapped because Churchill wasn't a fan of assassinating world leaders because it could lead to him joining others in the crosshair. But... I don't really know, you know, because those are the those are the only portions of the Chapman files that are still under lock and key. We do know is that he wanted to assassinate Hitler and that it was discussed. We don't know why it was rejected or how seriously it was discussed. All in all, super interesting guy with super interesting story. And if you want to know more, check out Zigzag, The Incredible Wartime Exploits of Double Agent Eddie Chapman by Nicholas Booth, which is pretty good. Or Agent Zigzag, A True Story of Espionage, Love, and Betrayal by Ben McIntyre, which I prefer. Uh, because these books obviously have a ton more info for you. And they really get into Chapman as a person, some of his foibles, some of his... Uh, like what made him a good person, what made him a bad person, what made him a person. There's just a much more in-depth telling of his story than what I'm going to do on a podcast. I will wrap up the Chapman story with a quote from our old friend, Tenai. The story of many a spy is commonplace and drab. The story of Chapman is different. In fiction, it would be rejected as improbable. The subject is a crook, but as a crook, he is by no means a failure, and in his own estimation is something of a prince of the underworld. He plays for high states and would have the world know it. Of fear, he knows nothing. Adventure to Chapman is the breath of life. Given an adventure, he has the courage to achieve the unbelievable. But that's all I have for you today, so be sure to join us back here next Tuesday for a discussion of Reservoir Dogs with my good friend, Chris Hans. And as always, if you did what you're hearing, make sure to drop a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any platform you got going that has rating and review options. And be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at high t underscore obsessed underscore podcast on Instagram and at high t o podcast on Twitter. 
there, especially Instagram. I'm posting memes, I'm posting videos, book reviews, updates, all sorts of good stuff. And it's a place to let me know like what you liked, what you didn't like, that sort of thing. So until next time, go ahead and make sure your refrigerator door is closed. And peace out.